Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Newt's World... The United States faces dangerous threats from Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, terrorists, climate change, and future pandemics. The greatest peril to the country, however, comes not from abroad, but from within, from none other than ourselves. The question facing us is whether we are prepared to do what is necessary to save our democracy. In his new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, New York Times bestselling author Richard Haas calls for a bold change. He argues that the very idea of citizenship must be revised and expanded and makes his case for what he considers obligations for American citizens. Here to talk about his book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and old friend, Dr. Richard Haas. He is the president of the Nonpartisan Council on Foreign Relations, an experienced diplomat and policymaker. He served in the Pentagon, State Department, and White House under four presidents, Democrat and Republican alike. A recipient of the Presidential Citizens Medal, the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award, and the Tipperary International Peace Award, he is the author or editor of 15 other books, including the best-selling The World, A Brief Introduction, A World in Disarray, and Foreign Policy Begins at Home. Richard, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's always good to be with you. Well, first, I just want to congratulate you as a fellow author. The Bill of Obligations is number 10 in the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list this week, and that is a remarkable achievement for a book that's that serious. Well, thank you. I'm not sure how much credit goes to me and how much it actually says about what's out there in the sense of, I think the book is gaining some traction or resonating. And I don't know what your experience has been. I expect we'll talk about it. But my sense is a lot of Americans buy into the premise that they love this country, but they're worried about some of the things that are going on. They're not as confident about our future as they'd like to be. So I think the book is tapping into something. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people now searching for answers because they feel troubled about where we are. Before we get to the book, let me go back to your own career. You've 
really had a pretty remarkable background. How did you get into this? This being the book or this being my career? Your career. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I haven't planned or designed a lot of my life. Life's sort of what happens while you're thinking about what you're going to do next. I came of age in the 60s. The big public debate was Vietnam. I went off to college. And when I got to college, which was a liberal arts college in Ohio, Oberlin, I went around campus and I said, who's the most interesting professor? And people said, it's this professor, Professor Frank. And I said, that's great. What does he teach? And they said, New Testament. And I laughed and I said, we never got around to that one in our house, <laughs> but I'm game for anything. So I took the course and as I expect you've seen, great professors can make a subject come alive. He was fantastic. And at the end of the semester, he said, why don't you come to the Middle East this summer, do some archaeology? So I did, did a dig. I spent my junior year abroad in the Middle East, and essentially I was launched on this trajectory. I got a degree in Middle Eastern studies, then in international relations. After I did a postdoc at a think tank in London, and literally while there, some people were from the Carter Pentagon. So this is 1977 or 8. And they said, you seem like a pretty bright guy. Why don't you come get some government experience? Come work at the Pentagon. And I got there. And, and the timing is a lot in life, Newt. So I got there in the summer of 79. Six months later, you had two big events. You had the revolution in Iran and you had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I was probably one of the very few, if not the only person there who had recently been to both Afghanistan and Iran. I had been there within the last six months and I wrote my doctorate on that part of the world. So, you know, one thing happened after another, after another. I've been incredibly blessed doing interesting things my whole career. You served in the State Department at a pretty senior level. You've served in the Defense Department. Those are two culturally very different places. As you look back on it, what's your sense of those two bureaucracies? It's an interesting question. The Pentagon, which I served first, a more orderly place in some ways. This one experience, we were trying to get civilian oversight of the operational war plans. And Bob Comer, so-called Blowtorch Bob, who was the number three guy, the first undersecretary of defense, I worked directly for him. And he was basically saying, you go get involved in these. And finally, some colonel sat me down and he said, Dr. Haas, you may be a decent guy. You may be a pretty smart guy, but you're what we call Christmas help. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're here, what, for a couple of years? Civilians come and go. This is our career. Uh, no way you're going to get involved in our war planning. But look, people were incredibly serious, incredibly respectful. I found the military really intellectually open in many ways. I enjoyed my work with them, I actually found that one of the more satisfying experiences I've ever had, I found the State Department more frustrating for the most part. Foreign service officers, with very few exceptions, I didn't find as creative as I would have hoped. A lot of them were more comfortable with reporting than, if you will, innovating their own thinking. A lot more time in the State Department went into the bureaucratic, because the State Department, as you know, is constructed with so many overlapping jurisdictions. It's almost designed to frustrate. So I found the Pentagon more satisfying, though I've got to say, out of everything I've ever done, with the four years I spent at the White House on the National Security Council, I'm not sure if it was because of the venue or the people I work with or the administration I was in, which was Father Bush, but that was by far the best professional experience I had. And that gave you a chance to work with Scowcroft, didn't it? Absolutely. I work with Scowcroft. I work with Gates. I work with 41 a lot. I was the chief 
Middle East, South Asia, Persian Gulf person on the staff. So obviously, among other things, when Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait in the summer of 90, that fell in my inbox. So it gave me a chance to work very closely with what I thought was an extraordinary bunch of people. And you also had Jim Baker at State, you had Dick Cheney at Defense, Colin Powell was chairman, Larry Eagleburger was the deputy secretary. I mean, not too shabby. Talk about a talented administration. You were, in a sense, right in the cockpit of the administration's greatest concerns. I was, again, fortunate. And <laughs> I remember early on in the administration, all the focus was on Europe, the end of the Cold War. I was bored. I was restless. And I kept coming in and complaining to Scowcroft that I didn't have enough to do. The Middle East peace process, as we used to call it, was, as always, going nowhere slowly. And I was frustrated. And then suddenly things got extraordinarily interesting. This became the first real test of the, what we now call the post-Cold War world. It was about as interesting and I think as important as things get in government. I actually think also the president, 41, he and his team handled it, I thought, remarkably well. Was it a big surprise when Saddam took over Kuwait? Yes. I mean, we all thought when he was posturing with his forces, building them up on the border in the summer of 90, late July, we thought it was just that. It was almost, to use an academic phrase, it was almost an example of gunboat diplomacy. He's building up. We all thought it was try to pressure Kuwait to get them to stop pumping so much oil, to agree to the price increases that Saddam wanted. He was hurting economically after the decade-long war with Iran. And so we thought he was just simply there muscling Kuwait. And it only became about the last 24, 36 hours that he was doing way, way, way more than he would have needed to simply coerce. And that's when it became clear that he was going in. So you also had a remarkable opportunity when you chaired the multi-party negotiations in Northern Ireland, which created the foundation for the 2014 Stormont House Agreement. I have some interest in this because as speaker, as you know, every year you celebrate St. Patrick's Day and the Taoiseach comes from Ireland and all that. And I actually hosted the first meeting in which both the Protestants and Sinn Féin were in the same room. I didn't know that. That used to be the hottest ticket in Washington, the Speaker's Lunch at St. Patrick's Day. I always had Guinness from the Dubliner. It was always a wonderful moment. But literally, they sat at separate tables, but they were in the room and was considered at the time sort of a minor breakthrough. Then ultimately became normal. And Northern Ireland, you know, I did it twice. I was three years the U.S. envoy. I was George Mitchell's successor. So did that from 2001 to three. And the big emphasis there, that was right after the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement which, by the way, we're going to note the 25th anniversary of this March. And then the goal was to try to get them to disarm and so forth. But and then when I went back, when you mentioned the interparty talks about a decade ago, the big issues were, more than anything else, was trying to get the various parties to deal with the legacy of the past. You had had the three decades of the Troubles. And there were thousands of crimes that had never been resolved. You had over, what, 3,500 or so deaths as a result of the political violence. And the whole question was, could you get a society to deal with a lot of the unresolved questions and issues? Turned out, no, we couldn't. Finally, they agreed a year later, but then they never implemented it. It was a learning experience, how difficult it is for societies to often deal with difficult issues of the past, and we try to get some other things done. And again, it was easier to do in principle rather than in practice. I guess the good news is that violence has become relatively rare in Northern Ireland. 
The bad news is local political institutions aren't working. And it's one of the most segregated societies in the world. It's interesting that the phrase integrated education there has nothing to do with race. It's religion. And maybe 10% of the school kids go to joint tradition schools where Protestants and Catholics get educated, but the neighborhoods are still very separate. The experiences are still very separate in Northern Ireland. When I went as speaker, it was very stark to have neighborhoods that were literally cut in half by walls and were necessary because the level of hostility was so staggering. No, you're right. And they had the Orwellian term of peace walls. <laughs> These massive granite walls, cement block walls with concertina wire, somehow calling them peace walls always struck me as one of the oddities. You've commented that there was a period in the late 70s, starting with your graduate work at Oxford, where you studied more history, you read Solzhenitsyn, and you had a sense of the British Labour Party's not being functionally very effective. And then the rise of Thatcher, who's I think with Reagan and Pope John Paul II, among the remarkable figures of that era. How did all that affect you? It really shook me up. It threw me. I grew up in New York, went to school at Oberlin, so not surprisingly, I came out of a very liberal background. Vietnam was the defining issue of my generation. I was too young for civil rights to have been a defining issue, but Vietnam was. And then when I went to Oxford, one is I studied an enormous amount of history. I had an unbelievably rich, fortunate experience, the people I worked with. I don't know if these names will mean anything. Alistair Bach and Michael Howard, Albert Harani. I mean, talk about being fortunate. And I realized there was a lot more to history than what I had seen firsthand in my own life. The Solzhenitsyn critique was very powerful for me to read about what authoritarianism was really like and what it meant in terms of the destruction of lives and the removal of freedoms and choices I mean, how could you not read that? For me, it was an eye-opener about the realities of communism and the Soviet system. I was still very young. I was in my early 20s. And then you had in Britain, the Labor Party, the labor unions took over the Labor Party and went far, far, far left. And you had people like Michael Foote, Arthur Scargill. These were essentially fellow travelers or worse and really were. I mean, here we use the word socialism here in a rather loose way. There was nothing loose about it. It was literal. And Thatcher came along, and unlike some of the other Tories, who she ultimately, I think, decided were fairly wet, for some she was dogmatic, whatever, but I just thought she was principled. And I thought she, how would I put it, it wasn't so much speaking truth to power, but she spoke truth to public. And she basically was incredibly intellectually honest. She didn't worry if she was unfashionable in certain ways. And it just basically shook my intellectual world and shook my political world. And it made me realize the background they came out of was wildly incomplete in what I knew and in its assumption. So that's where I took a major turn. And I, by the way, became a Republican for the next, what, you know, 35, 40 years. You are quintessentially a centrist. As I think of your whole career and I think of your role in public life, you've tried to be a very balanced person who fostered dialogue rather than infighting. Yeah, I think it's true. I'm not particularly ideological. For better or worse, I tend to be really analytical and I tend not to be ad hominem. And I tell the fellows who work for me here at the Council on Foreign Relations, don't spend your time ascribing motives. Don't spend your time attacking people. Just dig into ideas, dig into prescriptions. And I try to live by that. And I voted for people in the course of my life in both parties. If anything, I'm probably a classic liberal. If I had a sort of, or possibly a Burkean conservative, you know, we can play with the labels, 
But either way, I guess I'm a little bit old fashioned. <laughs> Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at Play play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Schlesinger wrote a small book, sort of defending classical liberalism in a sense, which at one time was the dominant political philosophy of the United States. It was indeed. I think it comes very close. You know, this is a country, as actually President Biden mentioned in the State of the Union, that this is a country founded on an idea. And I actually think the ideas are very much classically liberal. We didn't always necessarily live up to them about the worth of individuals, freedom, opportunity, those kinds of words I actually think are very close to our DNA here. This has been in some ways the most remarkable country in history in terms of attracting people from everywhere, creating enormous levels of wealth. And yet, in my lifetime, I watched us sort of reach a peak of belief in ourselves and then just begin to internally devour ourselves and begin to question almost everything. And some recent polls, it's pretty sobering, particularly for younger people, how much the depth of commitment to America and the depth of commitment to what we would have thought of as patriotism has grown more shallow. Why do you think that's happened? Well, one, I think you're objectively correct, and you see it in the polls, and I hear it in conversations, and I think like you, I'm distressed by it. It wasn't something I saw as coming. I think there's a number of reasons. One is our educational system's really poor in many ways. If we don't teach people about our history and what for all of our flaws, the many wonderful, extraordinary things we've accomplished, if we don't point out some of the flaws of other ways of organizing societies and governments, why do we think people are going to necessarily know those things? One of the analogies I use in the book, I'm Jewish, is the experience of Passover. Jews gather every spring to celebrate Passover, the story of the Exodus from Egypt. But there's a commandment in the prayer book for Passover, literally called the telling. That's the English translation of it, where we have the obligation to tell the story so generations understand What's the core? What's the DNA of being Jewish? And this was essential for Jews in particular. 
because so often in their history, they or we, in my case, have been deprived of access to holy places because of persecution or whatever. And what I like about the idea is it says, don't take for granted that your narrative is somehow known or passed on. You've got to make it a conscious act. And I think we in America have failed to do it. The demise of civics in a lot of our public schools is part of the problem. The fact that you can graduate from almost any college in the country, and even though these courses may be offered, they're not required, and most students don't take them. I think that's part of it. I think the end of the draft had something to do with it, Newt, and more broadly, the lack of common experiences in this country. I mean, you and I, again, are of roughly the same generation. I remember the debates about melting versus mixing pots. I actually think we have something different now, which is separate pots. And people live in this geography, go to this church, go to this school, watch this cable station, listen to this radio, and may have very little interaction with someone from a different class or a different educational background or a different part of the country or a different religion or a different color. I just think we're much more separate. So for lots of reasons, I feel that we don't understand our own inheritance. We don't value it. And we no longer have nearly as much common experience. And I probably, sorry to go on so long, but I probably see one other thing. I think in the recent decades, for a lot of Americans, the American dream has not proven real. A lot of people have seen their standards of living stagnate. They're resentful about what they don't have. It's all the makings of populism, the Iran and Iraq wars, where elites were seen to have let a lot of quote unquote average Americans down. So I think for all these reasons, the populism is stronger and support for democracy is weaker. Your concern about this led you to write the Bill of Obligations, which I think is a fabulous concept. How did that conceptualize for you? How did that come together as a way of communicating? <laughs> I don't know how you write your books. I walk a lot. Yeah, I once read Isaac Bashevik Singer once said a writer's best friend is his waste paper basket. You got to get rid of stuff, you're right. For me, it was also walking. That's probably my sneakers. Just thinking about where we'd gone wrong. It's in some ways a longer answer to the question you just gave me, where things went wrong. And I just started thinking about a lot of what was going on in our society and the focus on rights. And I get it. And I understand why rights are so fundamental to democracy. Indeed, it's almost a word association. You mentioned the word democracy. I'd probably say rights or freedoms. But then I started looking at our political debates, and increasingly it was right versus right. I read a quote from Steve Breyer, then on the court, and Justice Breyer said, and most of the tough cases they have to handle are basically just that. It's rights versus rights. And it gave me a really interesting, the more I started looking at it and started reading some philosophy about it that societies that just thought about rights ultimately would not succeed. We needed some ways of navigating or bridging when rights came into conflict with one another. January 6th obviously shook me up. It told me that something was seriously, seriously wrong. And that's what got me launched on this, you know, with real intensity, got me launched on this book. I'll be honest with you, I never thought I was going to write this book. I'm a foreign policy guy. That's kind of who I am. And here I am. I'm writing this book. It was really, again, goes back to what I think I mentioned before. You know, life's what happens while you're planning it. Well, this is what happened while I was planning it. How did you come to 10? <laughs> it was about like that. <laughs> I'd love to give you a really learned, philosophical, substantive answer, but it was somehow eight or nine seemed really, really bad. 11 seemed ridiculous. So I started playing with it, and 10 seemed about right. <laughs>
Did you think through all 10 before you began writing? No, I thought through some of them. It was more of a progression, and I just kept thinking about it. Again, I don't know how you write, but for me, the process of writing is it's aided by modern technology. You know, when I wrote my first stuff 40, 50 years ago, doing a draft was an enormous undertaking. I did it on manual typewriters, and if you wanted to make changes, it was a massive, shall we say, loss of time. With modern software, it's very easy. It's very iterative and just kept working it. And a lot of it was just thinking what we as citizens had to think about. And some of it was obvious. I started combining some and separating some. It became pretty clear. What's interesting, the book's been out now for a couple of weeks. No one has yet come to me and said, you really missed something. Maybe I have. I'm not ruling that out. But no one said, how could you write this book about obligations and list 10 and not having mentioned this? And that's yet to happen to me. But just maybe I stumbled on what seemed to be 10 pretty basic building blocks, if you will, of democracy. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet... There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. To what extent was your sense of obligations referenced in your own mind back to John F. Kennedy's inaugural address? That was one of the early things. I reread Profiles in Courage, which was quite interesting. And Kennedy both lauds people who compromise when compromise was controversial and people who refused to compromise when that was the principal thing to do, which I found intriguing. But yeah, I was surprised by how far we'd come. And you know, again, I don't want to make the book how would I put political in certain ways? But I thought during the Trump years and the rest, there wasn't enough thinking about what I would call putting country first. I thought that something had gone wrong with our collective character. And I thought, by the way, Donald Trump was as much a reflection of that as he was a driver of it. And again, this is someone who was a Republican for over four decades. So the Kennedy thing, it's interesting. The other day I was on TV talking about the book. And they showed some tapes of Kennedy speaking his inaugural address and all that. It was fantastic. The quality of the oratory, thanks to the Sorensons and Schlesingers and the rest, I understand. But still, it was quite remarkable. 
Well, I think it was also Kennedy. I think Kennedy had a stylistic intuition that it almost doesn't matter which of his speeches you listen to. He's really parallel to Reagan in that sense, that he understood how to draw an audience in. I think I probably quoted Reagan more than any other former president in this book, some of his things. One of the great things I did in this book, I've never done it before. I read all the inaugural speeches of the presidents. I read the farewell addresses of the presidents. For me, what was so much fun about this book is when I write foreign policy books, I'm basically involved in real estate that I'm pretty familiar with, and I have to just get a little bit more refined or dig deeper. So much of this was new to me in the sense either I'd never done it or I hadn't done it in 40 or 50 years, so rereading The Federalist. Reading the Articles of Confederation. I don't know the last time you have read the Articles of Confederation. My Lord, why anyone on the planet would have thought that was a viable design for a government (laughs) totally escapes me. And this reading all these speeches, reading a lot of Supreme Court decisions, the richness of some of the rhetoric, some of our intellectual history, I found this in some ways the most exciting research I've done in years. It's interesting when you mentioned the Articles of Confederation. It's easy to forget that the founders, many of them, were as fearful of too strong a government as they were of Great Britain. And that there's actually a faction, maybe as much as 40% of the Continental Congress, that wants to get rid of Washington halfway through the war because they're afraid he's going to become Cromwell and establish you know, a dictatorship. Here's this poor guy desperately trying to take on the greatest empire in the world. And behind him, almost half of his team is going, we don't want him to be too strong. <laughs> And you look at the anti-federalist literature and the heroes, the people we grew up with reading as kids. So like the Patrick Henrys and all that, who were vehemently against what they thought was this new tyranny we were creating under the Constitution, which, by the way, is obviously what led to the Bill of Rights. That was one of the first deals that, okay, for certain states to sign on to ratify the proposed Constitution, they basically said, we'll do it conditionally. And we've got to put certain limits and we've got to preserve certain prerogatives for states in particular, also for individuals. But what you say is exactly right. The articles may have been too weak, but there was an enormous faction that was worried that the new government was going to be too strong. Well, and of course, you have with Jefferson, who is sitting in France and I think beginning to sense the dangers of totalitarianism, who basically comes back and says, look, I will oppose the Constitution unless you adopt a Bill of Rights. I suspect, given his prestige, had Jefferson joined Patrick Henry, the Constitution could not have been adopted. Quite possibly. And Madison turns out to have been critical in this. It's interesting, Madison and the others were against the Bill of Rights early on for lots of reasons. One of them, it's almost the old red line thing, if you remember. Whenever you say, here's a red line, don't cross it, people say, well, we have to be careful. Does that mean if they do everything and anything up to that red line, we're going to live with it? And that's almost how people felt about a Bill of Rights. Well, if we enumerate these rights, what about other things? And if we don't enumerate them, does that mean they don't exist? It was a close call, by the way. That was the other thing that comes through. When I reread a lot of the history, history always looks so inevitable. When you look back on it and you generalize, there was nothing inevitable about this whatsoever. Which in a way should give us optimism about the future. I agree. I'm an anti-inevitabilist, if such a word exists. I don't know what your experience has been. We talked about some of mine before, but I've been in situations. You mentioned what Saddam Hussein did with Kuwait or certain things with the end of the Cold War. Any other crises I've been involved with in government, it wasn't inevitable. We either did or didn't do certain things. 
it actually turns out that a relatively small number of individuals can have an outsized impact on history. You mentioned Reagan. Remember the air traffic controller strike. How many other presidents would have done that? You mentioned Thatcher with the miners or what have you. I'm so old-fashioned. I actually believe in the great man or woman theory of history a little bit. There's very little that's baked into the cake. Maybe the cake limits the range of choices to some extent, but individuals matter to an extraordinary degree. And that does give me optimism. Whenever I hear people getting too pessimist and say, oh, you know, we're cooked. I say, no, not, not at all. Things can and probably will change, hopefully for the better. It's sort of like certain people are eruptions from the norm. The Gerald Ford republicanism could never have pulled off the 80s. The traditional Tories could never have pulled off the Thatcher revolution. Frankly, we're living through one of the more fascinating eruptions with Elon Musk. Here's a guy who, by sheer weight of intelligence and personality, keeps inventing things that would not have existed in his absence. It's certain people who come along in history, and they don't swim with the tide or the current. And they actually do make a fundamental difference. But I think you're right. I think these people, they really do rise above in some ways, and as a result, shape history. And I agree. I think Reagan most definitely was one of those people, as was not just, you know, I feel pretty lucky that I had a chance to work with both. I've always thought part of what made America astonishingly different is that our capacity to block the future is much weaker than most cultures. And so people can show up. And whether it's in politics with Reagan or it's in film with Walt Disney or it's inventing SpaceX with Musk, we just have this capacity to reinvent that breaks out of the norm over and over and over again. This is a society that is founded on ideas, on concepts. So you weren't precluded from doing that because you weren't born into the right class or you didn't have the right last name or whatever. I think in that sense, we've been more open. I think immigration has played a role in that historically. A significant percentage of the kinds of people you're describing often chose to come here or the children of people who chose to come here. I think we've, you know, through our educational system, we've provided opportunity. So I agree with you. I think this has been a country of enormous flexibility in that sense or openness. The only thing that worries me is there is a part of the literature which talks about democracies as they get older. They get sclerotic the way people of our generation do. The reason you and I are busy taking statins. So the question is, what provides a statin to a mature democracy? And how do we make sure that special interests don't get too powerful and that it just gets harder to get stuff done? And we see some of the debates now, which I think have added a degree of rigidity, the lack of, say, really talented immigration. Those numbers are down and so forth. So I think we have to make sure we don't take away the sauce that has made us as special as we are. I think we have to recognize it and protect it. Would you recreate a civics curriculum for every school in the country? Yes, sir. I would love there to be one for middle school and high school, colleges. Yes, I think we need to make civics required. I think there has to be a degree of consistency. It defeats the purpose if kids in New Jersey get a totally different understanding of the United States than kids in Florida or California or what have you. So I do think we need to have some common exposure to what makes us who we are. I want to thank you. I think your book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, is exactly the beginning of a dialogue we desperately need as a country. I'm delighted that your own career is taking this direction. This may be a period where fixing us domestically may matter more than fixing us internationally. 
I want to encourage our listeners to get a copy today. And again, I want to congratulate you for being the New York Times bestseller list. I really appreciate you spending this kind of quality time with us. No, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this as much or more than any conversation I've had since this has come out. And it's always a treat to spend time with you, my friend. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Richard Haas. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.